say that. All right, so there is this little boy who once asked his mom, where did the human race come from? And so his mom answered him, well, God made Adam and Eve, and they had children, and, and all of humankind came from them. Well, the next day, the little boy was thinking about it again, and he went to his dad, and he asked him the same question, to which his dad replied, well, son, many years ago, we were monkeys from which the human race evolved. Well, now the boy was really confused, so he went back to his mom and said, Mom, how is it possible that you told me that the human race was created by God and Dad said that we came from monkeys? Well, his mom answered, well, it's pretty simple, son. I told you about my side of the family and your dad told you about his. <laughs> All right. Since y'all laughed at that one, I'll do the second one. The second one, I don't know. we'll see. All right. All right, so one day Adam was sitting alone in the Garden of Eden and he said to God, God, you've given me life. And you've given me the responsibility of naming every living animal. You've given me plenty to eat. You've made me comfortable. You've given me a sense of meaning and purpose. However, I'm feeling kind of lonely. Is there anything you can do to fix that? So God replied, Adam, I'll give you a partner. And she will be called Eve. She'll stand by you. She'll support you no matter what. She'll lift you up and be at your right hand whenever you ask. She'll bear your children. She'll raise them to your liking. She'll feed you the finest meals, clothe you, take care of you. She will be beautiful and graceful and warm. She'll be kind and caring and thoughtful, and she'll always be there for you. But there's just kind of one thing. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg. So Adam thought about it for a moment and says, what can I get for a rib? Yeah, I knew that one wasn't going to land quite as much. So, all right, those are over with. Let's pray. God of truth, grant us wisdom by the power of your Holy Spirit. Through the study of Holy Scripture, Lord, for we have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But your word, O Lord, endures forever. Amen. So last week we focused on the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3. And this is a familiar passage of Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent's temptation of them to eat from the tree of wisdom so that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. But last week I didn't focus so much on on the the details of that, of the the trees or the eating of the fruit. Rather, my aim was to zoom out a bit and consider the bigger picture of how, you know, Adam and Eve ultimately failed to live according to the Imago Dei, according to the image of God for which they were created to be and called to do. And so we looked at how the image of God can be thought of as the intersection of three unique roles, all of which we've discussed uh, individually over the past weeks uh, in these first pages of Genesis. But one of those roles being as um, kings or vice regents representing God's authority and rule. We are to, to represent God's character, God's righteousness and justice, We're to rule, though, with compassion and care because all of creation is God's, and we've been entrusted with that. The other aspect of being the image of God is to be that of a priest, 
serving in God's cosmic temple of creation and the primary function being as being mediators between heaven and earth. And then the last role being prophets. A prophet is the voice of God to the world, communicating to the world God's truth, God's commands, standing up to injustice, calling out idolatry, naming what is opposed to God, and encouraging people to turn to God and to live under his rule and blessing. So these functions, these roles collectively represent what we were created to be as God's image bearers. Well, last week, as we looked at Genesis 3, the first few verses of it, we talked about how Adam and Eve failed to represent the image of God. They failed in their royal role to rule righteously. And instead of ruling over creation, they allowed the serpent of creation to have influence over them. And, they ca- and it caused them to compromise their royal integrity and authority. They also failed in their priestly role. They failed to watch over and guard the holy, the sacred space. They failed to maintain their holiness. They sinned. And they failed in their prophetic role to stand up for the word of God and the will of God. So they compromised their fidelity to the truth. And so last week we ended noting how Jesus perfectly fulfills those three roles as being the image of God, being God incarnate, prophet, priest, and king. So today we're going to walk through the rest of chapter 3, and we're going to do it uh, in a section at a time. We're not going to take one big chunk. We're going to look at a few verses and then talk about it and look at a few verses and talk about it and so on. So overall, as you probably know, Genesis chapter 3 deals with the consequences of the fall. And so let's just jump right in. We're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 3 and look at verses 8 through 10 to begin. It says they, that's uh, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So we're going to talk about the consequences that we observe in these verses in Genesis 3. And the first consequence of their sin was guilt. For Adam and Eve, we get a sense that the guilt was overwhelming for them. And there's a, there's a great irony in, in this passage. And I think sometimes we miss it because, you know, we kind of already know the story and it's familiar to us. And so we kind of skip over it. We don't kind of sit in it. But there's a great irony in this story because if we think about it, Adam and Eve, they're created in the image of God, but that wasn't enough for them. Instead, they wanted to be like God. Not representing the image and likeness of God, but to be like God. They wanted to elevate themselves outside of God's will for them. They wanted to take that power for themselves and live according to their own wisdom. And live according to their own will, not God's will. So essentially, they kind of got what they wanted. Kind of. But... It was kind of one of those scenarios where the grass is greener on the other side kind of things because they got this knowledge of good and evil and their eyes were opened 
But in the ironic twist, their eyes were opened to their own evil, to their own sinfulness, to their own wickedness, and so they hid. Why else would they hide unless they, did, they saw their own sin? The natural response of a sinful person in the presence of a holy God is to hide, is to try to cover oneself. You know, it's just like when we were kids. We haven't, you know, grown or matured all that much in thousands of years. Just like when we're kids and we do something wrong, we hide from our parents. You know, if my mom's watching right now, she can attest to I probably did that more than once. I had some hiding spots in the house. But we hide because we know we've done something wrong. We feel that guilt. People don't want to get caught when they do something wrong. Criminals hide. They try to evade arrest. Not that much has changed in the human response to guilt. Guilt is a fear-driven response. And a human's response to guilt is to hide. When faced with the perfection of God's holiness and righteousness, our own imperfection, our own unrighteousness then becomes magnified. The prophet Isaiah had a similar experience when he encountered Uh, when he had a vision of God in the temple in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah had this vision of God in the temple where he says I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty and the hem of his robe filled the temple seraphs were in attendance above him each had six wings with two they covered their faces with two they covered their feet and with two they flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called in the house filled with smoke. And I said, that being Isaiah, woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. That verse 5, that last verse, I underline the word lost there because I kind of think it's a poor choice of words. Because Isaiah is not talking about this sense of being lost or disoriented. He he means something more serious than that. The NIV and the ESV, if you have those translations, they render it a little better, I think. It says, woe to me, I am ruined. I am undone. I am ruined. But if you look at the, the literal translation, woe to me, I am destroyed. I am nothing. I am laid waste before God. Not just lost. I am destroyed. And he's not meaning like in a physical sense. He didn't just, you know, blow up or anything like that. He was completely aware in that moment, being confronted with God's presence of his own sinfulness, his own unworthiness to be in the presence of a holy God. He had no righteousness to stand on his own. He was completely and utterly at the mercy of God. Imagine if everything in your life was on trial. I mean everything. Public and private. Past and present. Every spoken word that you've said, everything you've ever thought in your mind, everything you've ever done. Imagine everything being exposed and laid out. I think one of our greatest fears as humans is probably the idea of being completely exposed. 
I mean, who hasn't had the dream of showing up to work or to school, you know, being completely naked? We all have, I think, that, that insecurity. It's like this deeply rooted insecurity that we have of being exposed. We have things in our lives that we're not proud of. We have things that we're guilty of. We all have insecurities. We are all morally flawed and imperfect beings. I mean, I think I would much rather, though, be naked in front of a group of people than to have all my sin displayed for all to see, past, present, and future. That, to me, would be more terrifying. We don't want people to know our sin. God is a holy God, and there is no hiding from God. Adam and Eve, in a way, represent what we will all face before the judgment seat of God. Just like Adam and Eve seek to hide themselves, seek to cover themselves because of their guilt, we try to do the same often in our lives. So guilt being a consequence. I'm going to continue on, picking up in verse 11. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. Real smooth, Adam. That's (laughs) quite the ladies' man, you know, knight in shining armor, throwing Eve under the bus. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. Again, not so much has changed in the past few millennia. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because really this idea of, of shame, this consequence of shame, is really it's connected largely with guilt. Guilt and shame go together. But because of their shame, what we see in these verses is both Adam and Eve try to deflect the wrongdoing. They t- try to deflect the guilt to someone else because they can't bear it themselves. Adam, you know, the great husband and leader that he was, um, didn't quite, this wasn't his shining moment. This wasn't that moment of righteousness that we might expect from Adam. And Eve, too, though, she couldn't bear the shame herself and passed it on to the serpent. When exposed, they tried to deflect that wrongdoing and guilt to someone else. Again, we see that today. Now the narrative turns to God then issuing punishment as, a, as consequences to their sin. And God starts with the serpent. We're, we're going to push pause on those couple of verses for now. We're going to come back to them because they're very important. But I want to skip to cha- uh, sorry, verse 16. The third consequence that I wanted to note is that sin complicates life. That's kind of a nice way to phrase it. There's probably other things we could say, but it creates stress. It creates frustration. It creates pain. It creates toil. It just complicates life, all aspects of life. So picking up in verse 16, to the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth, or it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sin doesn't just have internal consequences like the feeling of, of guilt or shame. It has outward, tangible, experienced consequences. In a nutshell, it makes life hard. Living life, even doing the things which are intended to be good and rewarding, are not without their own trials. Because of the fall, pain and stress and frustration and hardship and difficulty are now a part of life. For example, for Adam, it wasn't his punishment to have to work. No, that was Adam's role already in the garden. He was, he was created, he was called to work until the garden. He was called to serve the garden. But it was intended to be fulfilling and rewarding. But the curse is that now the consequence, the consequence of that is that his work is now toilsome. It's burdensome. He's still called to work, but now that work has become distorted and it's riddled with stress. Sin causes pain and hardship both to ourselves in our own lives, but also in the lives of others whom are impacted by our sin. Sin complicates life. It causes pain. Let's pick up in the passage we're going to read to the end of chapter 3, picking up in verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. The last two consequences I'll quickly note here, even though they're not necessarily small details. But the next one I wanted to highlight is sin fractures humanity's relationship with God. Humans were created to be in close relationship with God. Within the, the safety, within the boundaries, within the confines of this sacred garden space. And now because of their sin, they've been exiled from it. They've lost that, that proximity, that intimacy with God. And the last thing, sin brings death. And, and I think some people think that, well, does that mean that before the fall, humans were immortal. Um, I don't quite think that. And there's a, a scholar, I've, I've quoted him a couple times previously. His name's John Walton. He's, he's researched and written extensively on, on uh, especially Genesis. But he writes this, that, that whenever the Bible, not just in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, but other places, talk about how, how humans are created from dust... It's not really talking about dust being our biological chemistry, 
but rather that dust represents a statement of our identity as mortals. Just like when, when God says, for you are dust and to dust you shall return, he's speaking to the mortality of men. But Walton writes this, he says, if people were created mortal, the tree of life that was in the garden would have provided a remedy, an antidote to their mortality. When they sinned, they lost access to the antidote and therefore were left with no remedy and were doomed to die. By being removed from the garden, removed from God's blessing and rule and sacred space, Adam and Eve were simply subject to their natural mortality. And I mentioned that, I know that's kind of a little bit of an excursus, but I'm going to come back to that because I think there is significance with this idea of the tree of life and losing access to it. So if we think about it, you know, God could have been done with Adam and Eve. He could have been like, well, I put them here, they failed. I told them if they did this, they'd die, so done with them. He could have inflicted an immediate death penalty on them and simply wiped them off the face of the earth and have been done with humanity. But God's not done. And this is where we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And of all places, it's the curse that God issues to the snake. And in that curse, we see something amazing. Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel may not seem like much there but in the words of verse 15 we see the seeds the seed actually of redemption between the offspring of the serpent who represents evil the evil one and the offspring of the woman God draws a line and God says that there is going to be a conflict a struggle, a hostility between these two sides. But there's something really unique about verse 15. And it's, it's in the particularity of the words. So first, find the word offspring. It's in the, the third line there. So between your offspring and her offspring. That word offspring is in the, the singular, not the plural. But to be fair, we... we sometimes use a word in the singular to represent something that's plural in nature. It's similar to our English word for deer, right? So I could say, I see the deer. Am I talking about just seeing one deer or am I talking about seeing a group of deer? That word functions, it's a singular word, but it can function in a plural sense. Offspring, seed, is, is a similar word. Offspring could mean one specific offspring or it could mean many offspring together well so it doesn't give us a huge answer there but look at the next line he will strike your head and you will strike his heel 
That word he is definitely singular, not plural. If it was plural, it would say they would strike your head and you will strike their hill. But he says he. And this he, to me, indicates something bigger. Or rather, it indicates someone bigger, someone specific. In theology terms, this verse, Genesis 3.15, has been referred to as the proto-evangelium. It's a big word, but it's, a, it's essentially a compound Greek word. Proto, there's a prefix there, like in the, the word prototype. All right, so what's a prototype? Somebody can answer this if you want. Yeah, like the first rendition, right? It's, it's the first. So proto being first. And then that second word that, oh, it's not up there anymore. I don't have it up there. But the evangelium, that's the Greek word where we get the word gospel, evangel, evangelism, good news. So Genesis 3, 15, the proto-evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel of redemption. To the point, this is the, the first proclamation of the Christ who is to come. And the battle that comes, that conflict, comes to a climax on the cross. Satan, when Jesus is on the cross, inflicts a blow to Jesus' heel. But as a, uh, my pastor in Wichita Falls once illustrated it, so when Jesus walked out of the tomb on that resurrection Sunday, that first step that he took out of the tomb crushed the serpent's head. Jesus restores to us what was lost as a result of the fall. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent so it no longer has power over us. Jesus covers us with his righteousness so we no longer have to bear the guilt of our own sin. Jesus becomes for us the tree of life that we lost access to because trusting in him we shall not perish but have everlasting life. As the church, we are empowered by the spirit of Christ to represent once again the image of and likeness of God. Jesus restores to us all that was lost in the fall. There's something that I want to leave us with this morning. You know, if, if you've grown up in church, you know that because of the fall, we are born into sin. There's the, the doctrine of original sin, if you, if you know that term. And Paul explains this pretty uh, concisely in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death has spread to all because all have sinned. We're part of that all, by the way. Or as I've heard it said before, you know, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is a part of our lives, something that we are born into. But even when we think about our lives, the decisions we make, the, the thoughts that we think, we, we have failed, we know, to represent the image and likeness of God. We have, we have made poor choices. We have acted selfishly and ungraciously. We have had impure thoughts. We have spoken lies. We have gossiped. We have hurt others with our words. We've hurt others with our actions. We've hurt others with our neglect of them. We've done a lot of things not to be proud of 
And there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with that. And not only that, but on top of that, we receive wounds from others. We are recipients of wounds. We may have heard messages in our lives, maybe not blatantly, but through actions and and other words. We may have heard messages that you're not good enough. You're a failure. You're not strong enough, smart enough, pretty enough, worthy enough. You don't deserve to be loved. You've messed up too badly. You don't have a purpose or you don't matter. But if Genesis 1 through 3 tell us anything, it's that we do matter. But the worth that we have is not assigned to us by other people. The worth that we have is not assigned to us even by ourselves. The worth that we have is assigned to you by God who created you, who loves you, who forgives you, and who has redeemed you in Christ his Son. The truth is, we do fail. We do mess up. We do make poor choices. But if you hear anything this morning, hear this. God loves you. In spite of it all, God loves you. So when you stand before God, will it be with fear or with faith in Christ? Will you try to hide yourself behind the fig leaves of your own making or you'll choose to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I'll end with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a human being, and resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being, for as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Friends, receive Christ and give thanks. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you.